so often in conversations about abortion, after we build common ground, we are trotting out the toddler. But what happens if the person you're talking to is okay killing the toddler too? That's what we're going to dive into, particularly as it pertains to questions about disabilities for the child. Stay tuned. Hi folks, my name is Cam. I'm the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so that together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Um, thanks for being along for the ride. Uh, what a joy to be back with you here um, and continuing to roll through different kinds of conversations that you as a pro-lifer may encounter in various forms of outreach. Um, I know that um, the assisted suicide euthanasia discussion rages around the world. I know that there's even many people who reject abortion in all circumstances, but might not reject assisted suicide euthanasia in all circumstances and vice versa. I know many people who are entirely against euthanasia assisted suicide, but at times may support abortion for different reasons. And so this isn't a matter of trying to say that these two issues are identical but rather, how should we, as people who oppose abortion, navigate conversations where somebody might bring forward the idea that, you know what, I, I think abortion should be allowed when a child is diagnosed with a very severe, maybe a terminal illness or disability, it would be more merciful, more um, appropriate to end their life earlier rather than... Um, prolonging their life and their suffering and their pain. And that's the conversation that we're going to dive into today. I am joined by my friend and colleague, Blaze Elaine. You know him, you love him. He's been on the show a bunch of times already. Um, he is my counterpart at CSPR in many ways. I am. Um, I often call myself the poor man's version of Blaze Elaine because the guy is an absolute genius, uh, not only when it comes to pro-life apologetics, but also strategy and countless other things. He is a force to be reckoned with. I'm so glad that he is on our side and not on our opponent's side, as it were. Um, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about his book as well that he co-authored with our colleague and mutual friend, Jonathan Van Maren, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, um, because there are a lot of parallel themes as we're going to get into that go between conversations about abortion and conversations about euthanasia and assisted suicide. For those who are a little bit unfamiliar with um, what I'm talking about, um, this has been put under the mantle in Canada, at least as medical assistance in dying, a way of kind of um, making the, the terminology seem more uh, acceptable and um, appropriate euthanasia obviously being where a physician is the one who is administering the the lethal dose or whatever that will bring about the premature intentional and direct death of um the the patient the victim as i would say and assisted suicide being um medical assistance uh, a medical practitioner in some capacity whether a pharmacist whether a doctor or a nurse or something else entirely um, providing the means of suicide but the patient or victim themselves um, administering the the lethal dose or or whatever it may be on their own and so that's just a little bit of background it's been legal in canada since 2016 um countless forces are trying to expand it. It is actually incredibly horrifying just how far and expansive the euthanasia regime is becoming in Canada. But I know that it's different in different parts around the world. We're going to get into that a little bit in our conversation, I'm sure, between Blaze and I. Um, but for those of you who haven't tuned in to any of the episodes with Blaze, we've had him on the show three, four, maybe five times already. Um, 
Blaze has a background as both a technologist, a musician, and also a pro-life ambassador. He has been involved in the pro-life movement for over 15 years now. Um, I met him while I was an intern with CCBR way back in 2012. Um, I stayed at his and his wife's place in Toronto, um, where I met them for the first time. And he does a ton of incredible stuff. He's got a sweet blog that I'll drop in the show notes as well. Um, he is an excellent man and a good person to be tuning into today. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Blaze Elaine, Eastern Outreach Director and Apologist Extraordinaire with CCBR. All right, Blaze Elaine, thanks a ton for joining the show yet again. Um, it is great to have you back on the show. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. Great to be back. Good, good, good. I'm sure that, that it is difficult to carve out time for you at this time of year. We are leading into internship season and Toronto March for Life season. Uh, what, what does your calendar look like at this time? Do your wife and kids see you at all or do you just like crush work constantly uh, around the clock? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a heavy few months coming up. Um, I'm not sure when this will be uh, when when this will go live, but we're running a Halifax mini crash course in April, and we're doing uh, we're, we're joining our friends with Created Equal for some activism and on some American campuses, and we're preparing for the Toronto March for Life, and we're preparing for the biggest summer internship we've ever hosted in Toronto, and we're preparing for uh, an Eastern tour across six provinces on this side of the country and then our usual Toronto crash course. So there is a lot going on over the next few months and I am taking it one step at a time. Never a dull moment. I, I would make a joke about that's why you dye your hair just to cover up all the gray hairs that, that would otherwise be showing, but I, I won't get into that. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about, so uh, the, the gist of the episode, we're going to dive into like what happens if the person you're talking to is willing to kill the toddler? So often in conversations that we have, when somebody brings up a hard circumstance, whether it's bodily autonomy, whether it's sexual assault, whether it is a child with a, a very bleak outlook on life, so often what we're doing is common ground analogy question. We're trotting out this toddler in an analogy and talking about, uh, well, would we be willing to kill a pre uh, willing to kill a born child? If we're not willing to kill a born child in that situation, why a preborn child? Let's talk about humanity, that kind of thing. Um, and so we're going to talk in a moment about what happens if they're okay killing both the preborn and the born child. Um, but maybe let's rewind a little bit. So you and our colleague Jonathan Van Maren authored this book, A Guide to Discussing assisted suicide. Is this something that's always been on your radar and is kind of just like kind of merged paths with the abortion issue for you? Or is this something that through your conversations about abortion and unfolding um, Canada's uh, um, new euthanasia assisted suicide regime, this is more of a, a splitting of paths of like, this is something that has always worked for abortion and now you're seeing the application to euthanasia or is it kind of emerging a paths? I don't know if that makes sense at all. Those tuning in not on YouTube won't see what my hands are doing. Uh, is, is this a fork in a road coming together or is this a, a road that is um, separating out into two paths in your mind, I guess? Right. So, I mean, for CCBR, the focus is really on the abortion issue. And we put out this book on assisted suicide apologetics, sort of as a side project, as a contribution. And I'll explain kind of the thinking there in a second. But for me, I've been volunteering in the pro-life movement for 18 years now. And um, it was with the University of Toronto Students for Life and with Toronto Right to Life, both organizations whom have their mandate to cover both beginning mm -hmm. and end of life issues. So although abortion was also a primary focus, euthanasia and assisted suicide 
were also a focus. And for me, starting around 2012, um, uh, when we would host um, these fantastic pro-life speakers at the University of Toronto on the topic of euthanasia and assisted suicide, I started asking people, okay, but why is it wrong? Like I knew why I thought it was wrong, but I wanted to figure out how I could explain that to somebody else who doesn't share my worldview. And, you know, I kept asking people that question and I wasn't necessarily satisfied with the answer from like a, from an apologetics perspective. Um, and there, there, there were bits and pieces that I thought might be useful or might be compelling to share with someone in conversation, but it was through, um, looking for the arguments and looking for ways like with Toronto right to life, we have speakers in high schools that give presentations on abortion and on euthanasia and assisted suicide, you know, trying to find a more compelling way that we can make the case to high school students, trying to find a more compelling way that we can make the case in conversations. And when I started working for CCBR in 2016, actually just before I started working for CCBR, our, our colleague, Jonathan, um, he was looking at the same question and we were kind of thinking along the same sort of lines. So we started working together, uh, first looking for, um, apologetics resources and we found lots of great arguments, but not in a kind of conversational apologetics style. So then we started trying to develop it and going out, um, with the university of Toronto students for life for an hour a week on for a year and a half on the university of Toronto campus to have conversations with people about assisted suicide. Um, we started testing, like street testing these arguments. And there were a lot of arguments that I thought were great that fell flat. And there were a lot of arguments that we didn't um, think about until we were in conversation with people and they came up in, in the debrief. And of course, there were some we thought about in advance that actually did work. But um, by working this out, by street testing, taking the best arguments we could find from bioethicists and philosophers and great pro-life thinkers, moral theologians, and then trying to adapt it to and lend our experience in street apologetics to find the most effective ways to have the conversation about assisted suicide. And that's, that's how the book came about as, you know, our contribution of what we could um, bring to the pro-life movement on end of life issues, you know, and I, I, I see, I see a parallel, like it's not the same moral issue with abortion or assisted suicide, but they are both um, different kinds of right to life questions and they run in parallel and there are many parallels. There are many differences, but there are many parallels between them. And, um, one of the things in, in common is just the need to be able to change hearts and minds using science and human rights and to have effective conversations if we're going to change the culture. So that's, that's what the book, um, aims to do is to be a contribution in that direction, to share what we've learned from the streets um, and from high school classrooms um, to help equip pro-lifers to have effective conversations to change hearts and minds on euthanasia and assisted suicide. Boom. Love it. And I, I would say that the aim is true, that that if that's the aim, then that's exactly what it achieves. Uh, more and more info on a giveaway that we're going to be doing on the book um, towards the end of the episode here. And and I think that that, that honestly is is why it's so strong, because it's street tested, right? That, that all of the apologetics that we're trying to do at CCBR and, and arguably that we're trying to steep more and more into the pro-life movement, like you said, on both ends of um, from fertilization till natural death kind of thing, that we want all of the argumentation to be passed through the filter of street testing to make sure they're actually going to resonate. And and I mean, what, what important timing? You mentioned this is kind of 2015, 2016, which is exactly when euthanasia-assisted suicide uh, was, was really opened up with the Carter decision here in Canada. I know that 
a lot of our listeners are coming from the states and other countries around the world that probably have different legislation around assisted suicide and euthanasia. Uh, my colleague Jonathan Van Maren, uh, our colleague, obviously Jonathan Van Maren, um, talked at length with Matt Frad on the Pines of the Aquinas show to talk about the euthanasia assisted suicide regime in Canada and how that's deteriorating rapidly. Um, over the last five years, so so like you said, you've been doing apologetics um, on both ends of the spectrum, but but certainly on pro-life apologetics for, for abortion for 15, 18 years now. Since the legalization, the opening of the door to assisted suicide euthanasia in 2016, have you found that, that conversations surrounding um, children who are given poor uh, medical prognosis, um, whether before birth or even after birth, do you feel like those conversations are becoming not only more frequent, but also people are kind of doubling down or even, I guess, more questioning whether or not euthanasia is appropriate in those situations? Or do you think that this has really not touched a lot of the abortion conversation? Do you, do you see them kind of bleeding over into each other in how um, people who support abortion uh, might be influenced by this decision? I do think that there is um, there is a connection and uh, and a bleed there. Um, I haven't noticed a major difference with the legalization of assisted suicide in Canada. I've noticed a bit of a difference, but I think even before it was legalized, um, the the average person on the street might have been open to it in certain cases of like a terminal illness or 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 even disabilities, not kind of realizing their own ableism. Um, and I think that openness was there before it was legalized as well. So you'd notice that, uh, that crossover perhaps, um, in conversations at times, but I do think that the law has a role as teacher and in Canada where we've seen assisted suicide legalized, um, there is an extent in which it's starting to be norm more normalized that it's not just a um theoretical possibility of something that came up in bioethics class and you know in the abstract i might agree with it like people might have relatives who've died from suicide with assistance that um that given that there's an active conversation going on about expansion and that it's been legalized and rapidly expanding in Canada, just even in terms of the sheer scale. I do think that I notice a bit of a difference in terms of that kind of normalization or becoming more common. But I think that there was that crossover even before it was legalized because it was the it was an idea that many people who are pro-choice on abortion were open to even before it was legal. That, that's totally fair and super interesting. I, I've found in, in my own conversations that, that not only is it coming up a little bit more frequently, but I, I guess it's not necessarily dictated by the legal, legalization, but rather the language around the conversation that, that I, I find that coming into conversation, there's far more about the dignity and dying, the quality of life. Well, it wouldn't it be more merciful to kill this preborn child so they don't have to endure the suffering and and whatnot. And and our our colleague Stephanie um, Gray Connors would often showcase these incredible, inspiring stories of people who are um, navigating all sorts of different challenges and whatnot, um, which is beautiful. I'm curious. So uh, I was talking to a, a just, just, yeah, just yeah. jump in there for a second because it just ties a bunch of things together. We were talking about when I was with the University of Toronto Students for Life. Uh, back in 2014, 2015, we took one of those um, profound stories beautifully captured in this video 
uh, called 99 Balloons on uh, the story of um, Elliot Mooney narrated by his dad, Matt Mooney. We actually had his dad, Matt, come in, come to Toronto to speak in 2014. But we, um, it, it's, it's the story of a terminal prognosis um, that they received uh, uh, during the pregnancy and that Elliot survived 99 days afterwards. And just the family's approach to suffering and to uh, loving their son in such a tragic situation. It's so moving, like the, it, it, uh, like the, the hairs stand up on, on my arms. Like it, it, it brings me to tears no, many, no, matter, no matter how many times I've seen it. And um, one of the events we held uh, was just putting that, that video on loop in a student, student common area at St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto and having conversations around it as a kind of crossover testimony story between the questions of abortion and euthanasia. So I think that those powerful stories go a long way to giving people a different perspective on questions of suffering. Absolutely. And and um, because you bring it up, so I'm going to drop in the show notes uh, a ton of different resources, um, 99 Balloons, Choosing Thomas, a few other videos that um, I, I think are profound in, yeah, like you said, changing the perspective that people have on how do we how do we engage with these very heart-wrenching, very, very um, provoking stories of pain and suffering for both the child and the parent? And I think that, that we can't forget about um, the, the challenges that the parent goes through when it comes to euthanasia-assisted suicide of children and the suffering that those children are going through too. But maybe let's cut towards um, how these conversations go, um, just not necessarily for the sake of time, but also for structure, because as, as anyone in the audience who's tuned in before, I am very prone to babbling on lots of theory before getting into the practicality. Let's weave in some practicality into our theory as well. Um, and, and we'll expand upon it through a few principles. Um, but, but maybe, Blaze, walk me through. So somebody talks to you at a choice, Jane, one of the displays that you're doing downtown and says, hey, I, I think abortion should be allowed when that kid is has been diagnosed with a really, really severe physical disability, whether it's named or unnamed, whether they cite a, a trisomy 13, trisomy this, trisomy that, whether it's something else, spina bifida, they say abortion should be allowed in those scenarios because of the suffering that this child will inevitably endure. Wouldn't it be more um, merciful? Wouldn't it be better if that child just didn't have to go through that suffering? What's the first thing that goes through your mind and what is kind of the approach step-by-step step that you would go through when responding to an argument in support of abortion along those lines? Right. So, um, from theory to practice, you know, all the background perspective on suffering um, is important and we'll get there. But in terms of how I would respond, very simple and basic way at first, which would be common ground analogy question to introduce the infant or trot out the toddler to make an analogy to a born child. So um, common ground, like I agree, that would be a really challenging situation for um, for parents to uh, to be in to receive a, a diagnosis to process that to to, to try and prepare or decide um, uh, how to handle um, that challenge, um, and then you make an analogy to say a newborn child. You know, say that um, uh, parents found out that their child um, was living with a disability after that child was born. They didn't have a prenatal diagnosis, but once the child 
was born, it became obvious, or maybe it's something like, um, like autism that you notice as the child uh, grows older. Would it be okay to kill a newborn baby or a toddler because they have a disability and because there are challenges that come with living with a disability? And most people um, will say, no, of course not. You can't kill the child after birth. And then we can make that point in a Socratic way that, okay, well, it's not okay to kill somebody because they have a disability. And the conversation moves forward as they say, well, it's different. There's something different about about the fetus or the embryo. Like they're not a human being yet. And then we can move on and talk about the child, talk about the science of when life begins to make a case for equal human rights for all human beings, no matter how old they are. The common ground analogy question to introduce the infant or try to the toddler works with the vast majority of conversations to illustrate that principle. Absolutely. And definitely want to reiterate that, that, that that is the roadmap that we want to walk through. And like I said, for the vast majority of people, they're, they're still very inclined towards moving that direction of, yeah, I get that this is going to be hard and I wish that this wasn't a thing, but it is okay, you're right. Yeah. Whether it's something like MS, whether it's Lou Gehrig's, whether it's autism or anything else that you're probably not going to know about until after the child is born. Thankfully, there's still a majority of people in Canada that are going to respond with that um, kind of angle of, I guess you're right. I, I guess we can't fix that problem by killing that child. I've been noticing that, that while it is still a minority, it is a, a growing minority of people who are willing to say, you know what? I know what you're trying to say, but I, I think that the more merciful thing to do, the the more um, appropriate thing to do for the sake of the child, for the sake of the parents is to allow them um, to kill that born child too. And I know that when that first came up to me, I, I feel like I heard this for the first time in like 2012, 2013, my eyeballs just about popped out of my head of like, like, are you serious? You think that's okay. Thankfully for this person, by, by just like bouncing back to them, what I had just heard, they were like, oh no, when you said that way, it sounds terrible. I don't actually believe in that. I, I don't know if that's something that you do of like just repeating it back to them to make sure they actually mean it and not like, oh, this sounded great in my head, but when it's said out loud, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that. I find that when I do that, uh, again, a portion of people are going to kind of back down and be like, no, I didn't actually mean that we're going to kill the born child. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, let's talk about the humanity of the born child, or pre-born child now. Is that similar for you? And, and yeah, do you see that play out sometimes too? Yeah, yeah, I think that the the bouncing it back is definitely the next step. It, the way you put it reminds me of a um, stand-up comedy routine I heard years back talking about, um, you know, advice between couples and reflective listening and just like, so what I'm hearing you say is, and kind of repeat things back, but like it, it, when somebody says something that is um, so ableist, so discriminatory, so callous, so cold, um, it's probably not coming from that place. Like that's that's probably not their motivation and their intention, even though that's kind of the fact of what they've said. So to um, to bounce it back to them so they can kind of hear and have a have a second chance at deciding whether or not that's actually their opinion can go a long way to softening people's stance like what they thought might have been a good idea for a second upon 30 seconds more reflection um they might realize actually they don't really believe that 
Exactly. And I think it's important, again, for us to remember that that while, Blaze, you and I and, and many in our audience, when we're approaching these conversations, when we are um, provoking conversations about abortion, that, that's what's going through our mind. We are thinking about this. We are in the zone. Most of the people that we're talking to are not thinking about abortion right before they talk to us. And so they're going to say things that popped into their head like two nanoseconds before it came out of their mouth. And they haven't been deliberating on the strongest or weakest arguments um, in support of abortion. So do keep that in mind, um, folks in the audience, that just because somebody says something, it doesn't actually often represent exactly what they believe. Sometimes it does. And we're going to get into that. But yeah, sometimes it's just like something that gets blurted out and then they end up backtracking. I think often of our colleague, um, Justina, who often does that when it comes to people justifying sexual assault under the mantle of bodily autonomy. And she'll just say it back really loudly, especially when she's at a, a high school choice. She's like, so you actually think that sexual assault is appropriate? And she'll say it to be able to get them to back down because probably they didn't actually mean it. If there's any glimmer of them actually meaning it, then hopefully everybody else can peer pressure them into not actually meaning it. But I digress again, Blaze. I apologize. Um, and so again, a lot of people are going to back down. And and for those who don't, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, I, I can't say that I've run into a ton of people who are doing it out of an attitude of, of in extreme callousness towards preborn child. It's not that they want to kill more children, but rather how they're understanding, understanding suffering, how they're understanding... Um, parenting and and quality of life through their own eyes through the eyes of the people that they care about around them maybe, maybe speak for a moment if you would about kind of what goes through people's minds from your experience talking to so many people about suffering about quality of life what might they be thinking about when they're potentially doubling down on this idea that you know what maybe this is actually the most um loving thing or caring thing to do is to put them out of their misery what what might be motivating that kind of mentality? Yeah. So as you say, you know, we're thinking about the like we're thinking about the abortion issue before we get into the conversation. We're listening to podcasts and preparing for these conversations and you know, doing it have trying to have as many as we can. The person we're talking to is not necessarily in that mindset. It's it's important to be conscious of our mindset and be conscious of their mindset. So I think that a mistake that pro-lifers can make when we've had some apologetics training, especially if we've got some kind of background in bioethics and philosophy, is to jump straight in the kind of intellectual or even just apologetics direction of being like, oh, this is like Peter Singer and this is his horrible view and like I need to make these kinds of arguments or something or, you know, um, like, like, like to think about the argument that we've just heard because it is such an extreme argument. But I think that when people say this, what I've come to firmly believe and try to teach other people is that we got to think about the person first because um, if somebody can't tell the difference between right and wrong, it's probably because they've been wronged. And I think that when I hear extreme arguments, extreme positions, I've learned to not just see this extreme argument, but to start thinking in hard apologetics terms, start thinking, okay, not just like what's wrong with you, but like, okay, what happened to you that might lead you to uh, double down 
on such an extreme view of, you know, killing a disabled toddler or something, right? Like maybe like it, it's probably because of some kind of suffering that the person has experienced or seen in their own life for which they perhaps are rationalizing or think that this must be an answer or, you know, maybe it's not, I mean, it could be about disability. It could be about difficult life circumstances. Maybe it's about some totally different um, connection with abortion. And they just feel like they have to bite the bullet on this to justify abortion. And abortion has to be okay because of some other reason, right? So the argument might not, is may well not be at the forefront of their mind. And so I'm thinking hard apologetics terms. And um, the other thing I think is really important to keep front of our minds um, at this stage of a conversation is that the goal here is common ground. The reason why we trot out the toddler and introduce the infant is because that is the quickest way to common ground with almost everybody on the issue. Uh, like on, on that question, like if we can make an analogy to a born child, then we can find common ground and we can work with that to try and make a case that abortion is wrong. So if somebody bites the bullet here and they say, actually, they're okay with killing the toddler, well, we have not succeeded yet in achieving common ground in the usual way, but that still is the goal. So in order to be able to have a productive conversation, if I can't find common ground um, the normal quick way that I do with most people, that is still my primary objective right now. I'm like, okay, I need to, I remember this hard apologetics layer. I'm not sure what's, what's happened to this person to lead them to bite the bullet in such an extreme way. But for my next step, how can I find common ground? So maybe it's bouncing it back and they take it back and you actually get that common ground. Um, but if not, it's like, okay, where do I go to next? It's in a search for common ground, because that's the basis through which we can have both the heart conversation and also talk through and dismantle the argument. I'm looking for common ground. Love it. And and I think that's so important. And I feel like common ground, as we've talked about on so many episodes, is vital, not only for the sake of the conversation at hand, but also because so often as pro-lifers, we're planting seeds that, that maybe another pro-life or a week later, a month later, a year later, ends up um, taking up the next conversation. And so common ground is not only valuable for the conversation that you're in right then and there, but also for the likelihood of that person ever talking to a pro-lifer again. And so- yeah. And and in that conversation right there, yeah. if you don't have common ground, you don't have your footing, you don't have a foundation to push back yeah. against that argument effectively. You need it in the short term and you need it in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so there's two forms of common ground that go through my mind of, of like one that is said and one that is asked, like one that is a proactive statement, one that is a question. But I'm curious, what what is your your quest for common ground? And, and that might put it a little bit too trivially, that this isn't some adventure game of choose your own adventure. So I, I apologize for, for making it sound that. But like bearing that in mind, how do you continue that pursuit of, of that common ground? What is your next step to try to try to find that anchoring point that, like you said, you can push off of to help them reorient their perspective on abortion. Yeah. So in general, if, um, if I can't get common ground with an infant or a toddler, that killing would be wrong for whatever reason, um, then, uh, I might go like, I, I, I generally go, um, 
higher in terms of age, right? So I have had the conversation sometimes where people are like, well, you know, you know, like it is up to the parents to decide whether or not to kill their child, even if that's a newborn baby. And I'm like, you know, even if they're, if they're two years born, it's been, and and then like, yeah. And then I'm like, up to what point? Like, what about a 16 year old who's still living at home? They're a minor. Like, do the parents have, you know, kind of like a, a bit of a reductio ad absurdum, but to um, try and introduce some humor while also taking the roof off and exposing how extreme that is and see how far they're willing to go, right? Like, like, hold on a second. Are we saying like for an eight year old, a nine year old, a 10 year old, a 16 year old? What about adults? What about like just, adults here on on the street can we just uh you know if it's a case of disability can we kill somebody in their 30s because they're living with a disability and i'm trying to figure out like I, i'm i'm in search of that common ground so i am going intellectually like i'm i'm, I'm going at, at, at the argument there but i'm trying to figure out where the limit is like where can we agree that killing is wrong maybe it's at an older age, and then there's something about development of a young child that we need to drill down into, or maybe, um, maybe they say something about like you know an older human being um, being capable of consent, and then okay, well, can we kill somebody who's not capable of consent? Like, uh, like I, I'm trying to figure out what's their rationale, where's the limit, and how? Uh, like, maybe I need to go a lot farther that, that I need to go with m- most people to find a case where we agree that killing is wrong. But um, that's what I'm I'm looking for because then if I can find in their words, um, in their view, when they think killing an innocent human being would be wrong, then I want to apply that principle back and use that foundation. If, um. If I like to, to to jump further ahead and and some subsequent steps, if people bite multiple bullets here, um, if I can't find common ground on why killing is wrong, then you know if it's all just kind of relative, it depends. Then I'm looking for, okay, can I get some common ground on why on some sort of sort of objective morality like sexual assault or torturing or abusing? a child and sensitively bringing up um, other horrific things that hopefully I can get someone to agree are morally wrong. Why? Because they harm somebody else. And then I can bring that back to killing. So I've got to go even further if I can't get the common ground on killing, but I'm looking for something we can agree is morally wrong. And if it's total uh, moral relativism all the way down, um, then I'm really like, straight into heart questions and 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 just if someone can't tell the difference between right and wrong how have they been wronged i'm just I'm trying to get at um why like where they're coming from to not be able to condemn um any kind of killing of an innocent human being or any kind of objective morality but i'm going in search for common ground that's something we can agree on is morally wrong so that we can work our way back from that agreement through our disagreement Love it, and, and I think that makes a ton of sense of, of trying to test a limit on on where people are at. On is there a line? And, and like you said, if there is no line, we're going to dedicate a, a couple of. We've done a couple episodes already on moral relativism and how to how to really dive into that heart component of 
maybe this is motivated by them not seeing any value in themselves. And if, if the person closest to home has no value, then how could anyone else? We've got other episodes on that. So I, I, I won't dive too far in there because I'm sure that we could talk all afternoon on that too. Um, obviously, we're trying to find that that kind of pushing point of, of the limit that they're going to go to. When you find that limit, do you... So when we introduce the infant or child on the toddler, it's just a matter of, okay, if we're not going to kill that born child, why that preborn child? Do you immediately link it back to preborn children or, or are you going to try to trace if, if they say, okay, well, no, not a 16 year old. Um, do you say, okay, well, if not a 16 year old, why a preborn child? Or do you say, if not a 16 year old, then why that eight year old that you just said that you were okay with them killing? Just out of curiosity, how far back do you trace it as soon as you find that, that limit that they've kind of baked into their, their idea? Yeah, I think it depends on how far I have to go, Mm, right? Like if we've had to go like several blocks down the street versus to the next city over, um, it might be a bit of a journey back or it might be an immediate connection back. But it's, you know, how many steps away do we need to go to find that common ground? And I don't want to... I don't want to rush it. I don't want to be like, ah, so you do think there's objective morality and therefore abortion is wrong, right? Like, 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 hold on a second. We're going to have to connect a few dots to get back from all from this, right? From like all the way over here that we had to journey to find a, find a limit um, versus if somebody has a limit for a six-year-old that they don't have for a two-year-old. Okay, well, I'm interested in that step. What's the difference between the two-year-old and the six-year-old? And I want to drill down and understand their thinking there um, so that I can uh, save the toddlers and newborn children and then work back to, to preborn children. So that's like not as many steps down, but it it depends on how many steps they go would be how many steps I'm going to take to get back. Makes a ton of sense. And one other, at the risk of doing another, another rabbit hole here. Um, I, oh my goodness, I'm going to blank on this movie. And so Maddie, I'm sorry, you might have to cut this if I can't think of the movie or the book. Um, Never let me go. Uh, the the movie and the book um, a little bit ago. Have you have you ever read the book or seen the movie Never Let Me Go? It's basically spoiler alert um, for anyone who is reading it right now. It's about organ donors and about cloning children to be organ donors for others. And I wonder about if if you've thought of comboing the disability component. You uh, you search for for common ground anywhere and objective morality. Sometimes I've I've found success saying okay. And so you're willing to allow the parents to kill that two-year-old child, that that six-year-old child, whatever we've agreed on. Would we allow them to, whether it's torture them for for their own sadistic um, pleasure or in uh, contribute towards the medical society? Like, do you think that we could prolong their life so that we could harvest their organs and and make their life? I mean, they're suffering anyways. Do you think that we should be able to make their lives even more miserable? for the sake of benefiting other people. Do you think there's any merit in kind of trying to combo stuff like that? Or does that get too convoluted, too complicated? And let's just keep things as narrow and simple with moving pieces as possible. I've, I've never tried that kind of combo. My instinct is simple, but there can be times where awakening the moral imagination in different ways can work. And what, what that example makes me think of is just, if I can't find common ground on why killing is wrong, and we have to go to the next step of like trying to find common ground that it's morally wrong to harm somebody else in some kind of awful way. Like if, if we can agree that child abuse is wrong, um, you know, isn't it also child abuse to kill a child? Isn't that, you know, it's t- it takes away all of their future and everything they have. Like that's, that's, um, that is also 
harming and abusing them. Um, so to be able to, if you have to take a step away from killing for a second, the notion of harming or like the thing is, I think that people sometimes when, when the, the folks who will bite the bullet on this stuff, um, they will think that suffering is worse than death, that it'd be merciful to kill someone, um, that it would be worse to abuse them and make them, you know, live in this context and stuff. And I think that there are two ways in which I try to unpack that. And I don't have like a go-to kind of, um, uh, more complex analogy, but sometimes things will come up on the fly as we're trying to talk through it, but it's talking through why it's wrong to harm or abuse someone and to try and connect the dots that killing is that kind of thing. Um, but also when it comes to the notion that some people should be better off dead, that it would actually be better for them. Um, one analogy that I have often made is to, uh, whether it's around people living with disabilities or whether it's around you know a question of poverty or homelessness and things like that, is to jump straight to um, adults who can make decisions for themselves. And I'll say, you know, let's, um, let's set aside the, uh, well, let, let's, let's look at adults who could make the tragic decision to commit suicide. If most people living with disabilities really thought they were better off dead, or if most people who were homeless really thought they were better off dead, um, why isn't everybody making that decision and to, to, to sensitively bring that up because it's not that there aren't serious mental health and, and suicide struggles when people are dealing with real suffering. The question though brings to mind, okay, hold on a second. You are making this judgment about somebody else, mm -hmm. but a situation that you're not in. Whereas if we look at people who do live in that situation, isn't there something that tells us that many of them actually would rather be alive yeah. no matter what suffering or challenges they're they're facing like shouldn't that give us pause at the very least to make that decision for someone else who has no say in the matter when most people who make that decision for themselves do not choose to end their own life mm -hmm. so i i find that that analogy can sometimes be helpful to try and address this um better off dead notion and and give people <laughs> some uh second thought on that I, I think that's fantastic. And, and maybe to, to ask one follow-up on that, and, and I apologize that I'm chasing you all over the map here. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll try to tie this up in a moment of, of trying to get as, um, I, I know that this isn't a necessarily step one, two, three, here's everything you need to know baked into a, a single recipe card kind of thing. Uh, but maybe one last follow-up before we get into starting to tie things together. Um, do you often articulate the difference between um, suicide and assisted suicide of a matter, uh, can we agree that uh, while suicide deserves a tremendous amount of conversation as to whether or not it's ever appropriate for somebody to take their own life, that there's a significant difference between somebody taking their own life and us taking somebody else's life? Do you ever articulate that difference with that delicacy of acknowledging that that it's not that you're saying, well, sure, if somebody wants to kill themselves, they can do it, but it's different when you're killing somebody else. Obviously, that's not the language we're going to use. Do you find their value in in differentiating between uh, just articulating that very directly with people? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, w- I would use different language, but, um, uh, and, and I haven't put it in terms of, like, see, see the thing about assisted suicide is assisted suicide um, tends yes. to bring to mind a certain kind of agency. Yeah. And the point that I want to make here is that the child is not able to have any kind of say. They're, they're not able to make that decision. So, you know, I, 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 I might say like, look, um, if, you know, an adult, um, living with a disability is suicidal, I think there's a really like, like there's a lot that we need to do in terms of suicide prevention and better support with, with people with, with disabilities. Um, is there not something different though, if somebody is making that choice for themselves. I think it's tragedy and I think we should do everything we can to prevent it. But then if somebody else came along and said, because you have a disability, I'm going to kill you. Like when we're dealing with, with children, you know, if you think they're better off dead, can we at least let them grow up and make that decision for themselves? Not saying that it's a good thing. I think that we need to do everything we can to support people in those situations, but it's um, a radically different thing to go ahead and kill people for that reason when they have no say in the matter. And when we're talking about infants and toddlers, they don't have the ability to participate in that decision. It's being it's a it's it's a choice that somebody else is making for them that they are better off dead, regardless of what they would come to conclude on that themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously that that speaks most poignantly to those who will will survive long into their grown lives or adult lives sort of thing. You think about things such as Down syndrome. I've heard people um, say about even even a child diagnosed with cleft palate or something like that, that that often can be remedied very uh, manageably by by minor surgery kind of things and and people um, questions on that obviously you've got the full spectrum of disability that that ranges from somebody who's got a disability that they'll live with for a a long time decades decades and have a, a relatively long life and others who you know they're, they're never going to reach the point of consciousness where they could have an opinion on their own and i think that um the last thing i'll say before we tie this up is that sometimes that's where i'll not fish for another form of common ground, but but just offer as a, a statement and maybe engage a little bit in a conversation about how though those working in palliative care in our, our um, medical system have worked diligently to manage the suffering and pain of, of all people enduring different um, suffering, that there's so much more that needs to be done and, and trying to build some common ground on the fact that like there is a tremendous amount of pain and suffering in our world, not just physical pain, but that it, that there's a problem of pain as it were, um, that demands a solution. Now let's talk about what the solutions are. Do you find that, that I'm taking a, a half step back to talk about not the brokenness of the system. I don't want to throw those in palliative care under the bus and say that, yeah, palliative care is terrible and, and that people just live in pain their entire life. But do you find their value in identifying on a different kind of realm of common ground that, yes, this is a tremendous area, especially as they're doubling down and, and kind of backing up more and more. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit in, in a heart capacity about the suffering that far too many people endure and the help that not enough people are getting for a variety of reasons. Do you find that there's value even though you bring that up right off the right off the top to weave that back in and have that as a consistent thread. Yeah. When you say at a, at a heart capacity, that's what I think, um, 
in terms of heart apologetics uh, is really helpful to be able to do in some of these conversations, not as the first, second, third, fourth, or necessarily fifth move, but when you have built enough rapport and you're getting into the depths to be able to give people a different perspective on suffering. Now, as you mentioned, there are other podcast episodes that go through heart apologetics in more detail and more systematically, but one of the, like the, 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 the first component of the part of apologetics is listening, seeking, and understand. The second is communicating the truth and love. But the third is to inspire people, is to give people a different perspective on challenges and suffering. And in that third area of heart apologetics, when addressing this specific question, say of the terminal prognosis of a prenatal or uh, or a neonatal child, I think that... Um, some of those stories that you are putting in the in the show notes of Thomas of Elliot are really really powerful. Um, I think of one of my friends from UFT Students for Life, who um, after she had uh, graduated university, she shared through Facebook the joy when she became pregnant, but then when she found out that. Um, her child had a terminal prognosis. She she shared this publicly on Facebook. She said, it's hard to decide whether to make this announcement or not. But yesterday, it's ultrasound um, revealed it was, it was Potter syndrome is where there's no amniotic fluid and a stillbirth is, is pretty much guaranteed. And as she was journeying through that, um, you know, the challenges of having to, plan and prepare a funeral when there's no baby shower to support it and the kind of challenge that she had with other people understanding what was going on like that is an opportunity that we need to to respond and support um people facing those situations um with more understanding more help and support like maybe we don't have the cultural resources to help parents grieve during a pregnancy in the way that we might after birth she she talks about the joy of being able to spend the time that she could with her son, Matthew, that he was at least safe for a period of time while he was in her womb. And that was the only way that she was able to care for him, but she was able to do that um, for the short time that she had with him. She shared photos after he was stillborn and um, photos from the funeral and the burial. And, um, you know, the, the, the tragedy, the grieving, but also the beauty in what little time they had with their unique and unrepeatable son, Matthew. And, um, the way in which, I mean, I was going to say the way in which that story ends, except the story doesn't end because I've, I've talked to her briefly about it in, in recent years. And, you know, Matthew, like I, I asked her about sharing this sort of thing publicly and she says, please, like it's, it's sort of honoring the memory of her son that people haven't forgotten him, that he is remembered. Um, but the way in which Matthew's life ended was with grieving and was with um, uh, trying to make the best of what little time they had. It wasn't with suicide. It wasn't with him dying at their hands or the hands of a doctor. 
it was a tragic situation with a diagnosis like that, but doing everything they can to care and love their son. And I think that um, we can understand the weight and um, not in any way belittle the challenge of a situation like that while sharing stories that can give people a different perspective on suffering and our response to it. And the alternative isn't just throwing our hands up in the air. Like one of her Facebook posts was learning that morphine and Ativan could be administered orally to an infant who might be suffering and she's preparing for the possibility that he's born alive and might be in pain. Okay, there's palliative care options for infants, you know? And there, it's not just throwing our hands up and and doing nothing, but that there is um, another way to love in the face of suffering, to alleviate the suffering, never eliminate the sufferer, to um, respond with care and love rather than with killing, and to illustrate a different way to see the question of suffering. I think that's the kind of um, unique kind of heart apologetics um, stories that are helpful to be familiar with if we don't have that personal experience ourselves. Um, not as a first, second, third move, but when you're in a deep conversation with someone like this, to be able to maybe unlock a different paradigm, a different viewpoint of seeing the question that might help um, transform their perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's such a beautiful witness and, and something that, that is so consistent through all of these stories, many of which I'll, I'll share in the show notes, like you mentioned, that this notion of all my child will ever know is love. All they will know is the sacrifice that we have done to try to um, mitigate their suffering, to manage their, their pain. All they will know is love. And, and I think that regardless of somebody's faith background, this notion of, oh, well, uh, I, the person I'm talking to is an atheist and, and the idea of my child somehow knowing that I've loved them, like they, they have no brain, they can't understand love. I think that even at a, uh, a simpler level for that person, even for the psychology of the parents and, and people involved in that decision to be able to go through their life knowing that they sacrificed everything they loved as deeply as they possibly could, that is going to be a, a much different wound to grieve than knowing that to put it plainly, unfortunately, that, that that parent may have given up on their child before um, before they otherwise could have or would have sort of thing. That, that for those listening, if if this is something that hits close to home, then, then there's no condemnation, there's no judgment on trying to make medical decisions for your child. I'm not here to say whether or not somebody has hastened the death of their child or not, not knowing the particulars of anybody's situation, not to mention all of the the emotional anguish that goes into those decisions. But I think that preparing people before they get to that point is so vital in the conversations that we're having, Blaze, you and I, and, and so many others on street corners and on doorsteps, so that they're equipped with these tools to know when they may hear that tragic news from a doctor that, you know what, I, I am going to, with the support of my community, with the support of the pro-life movement, navigate this and pour all of my love and all of my heart into this child for however long I may have with them, whether that's years and years, whether that's only mere moments kind of thing. I think that that's uh, such a, a consistent theme that we have through all of these resources and the stories that you've shared as well. So I, I thank you um, for, for sharing all of those experiences from your own conversations, from friends of yours that, that you've got. Um, 
I know that we've talked through a lot of different things in this episode. And so I'm going to try to summarize some of this and then you can correct me if I missed anything or if I'm um, missed summarizing it. We talked a lot about how we want to start the conversation with common ground analogies and questions, trying to pivot towards the humanity of the preborn. And we're going to offer initially an analogy that, that simply demonstrates, would we make that decision for an infant or for a toddler whose diagnosis we didn't know until the child was born? If, if they kind of double down on that, we might repeat it back to them. But then we might go a little bit deeper into trying to understand what's motivating that and maybe trying to find a limit of, okay, if, if they're okay, comfortable with a, an infant, would that extend to a toddler? Would that extend to a, an adolescent or a teenager? Yeah, some, yeah. some moral common ground. Yeah. Yeah, moral common ground in this area and, and really trying to seek to understand where they're coming from before we're going to launch into an all-out academic attack of a perceived worldview. They're trying to understand where they're coming from. And then as that conversation deepens more and more, and as we realize what might be motivating their worldview, being able to dive into more of those hard apologetic style conversations of seeking to understand, loving them genuinely and sharing the truth in that love and inspiring by providing a different perspective and, and sharing some of these beautiful stories to help them understand that while living the truth is going to be difficult, a truth is possible and, and it is possible to um, respond to these problems, these challenges in a loving, life-affirming way rather than what our culture all too often um, offers of not a, not a quick release per se. Not, again, I don't want to undermine the, the strain and anguish that may go into these decisions, but rather a, a decision that's inappropriate nonetheless, regardless of what may be motivating somebody towards the decision to hasten death of their child. Is that a bit of a fair characterization, that progression through the common ground analogy question and then deep, um, diving deeper into seeking to understand, sharing the truth and love and offering a different inspiring perspective? Absolutely. And, and in terms of the roadmap, you know, sometimes you only take one sidestep and you can get back real quick right? Yeah. You know, it's just bounce back in your back. Sometimes you take three steps to the side and it might take you two or three minutes and you can bring it back. And sometimes the conversation goes so far down the road that it becomes a large heart conversation. Yeah. It's not always a large heart conversation yeah. just because someone brings this up, but um, there's always that heart layer. But like how many steps down the road you go kind of depends on when you can find that common ground and if you're able to bring it back. But that's the full extent, mm -hmm. I think, that some of these conversations can go all the way down to those deep questions about suffering and, and love and what our perspective is on it to some quick common ground analogy question, bounce back and get back to a normal conversation <laughs> anywhere in that spectrum. Love it. That, that's fantastic. Um, as we wrap up here, Blaze, um, I'll, I'll be sharing again in the conclusion here. We're going to do a couple giveaways of your book. I'll drop in the show notes as well. If you don't win a copy of the book, you can still buy a copy of the book um, on our website. Um, any other resources, any, any other things that people should be pointed towards um, to help kind of expand their understanding of this that you found helpful in your own journey, developing some of these arguments? I'll throw one little footnote out there just yeah. to another video that could be included, and that's one of uh, Brandon Bosma's talks. There's a few that are available online, but just because sometimes when there are supposedly term terminal diagnoses, they're not actually terminal. So Brandon, um, I was at a Canadian Physicians for Life conference in Calgary a few years back, and he got up there and he spoke. He had mosaic trisomy 18. Trisomy 18 is exactly what Elliot Mooney had, but he had mosaic trisomy 18. And he was standing there giving this, uh, this, this talk to a room full of doctors and med school students. And one of the med school students got up and said, you know, I learned in class like a week or two ago that trisomy 
18 is fatal and nobody survives more than a few days after birth. And here you are standing and talking to me. And um, just as another uh, resource, another story, because some some of these diagnoses have 100% fatality rates and they are terminal with the state of, of modern medicine right now. But some of them we think, we may think are terminal, but it's actually just a lack of medical care. And, and Brandon uh, talks about the medical discrimination and um, the unwillingness to treat babies that have mosaic trisomy 18 because they think, well, it's not worth the resources. They don't have a chance of surviving. So I, I would just flag uh, Brandon Bosma's story as a, another type of story that is really helpful to be familiar with in the spectrum of the kind of um, adverse prenatal diagnoses that can come up in these conversations. Fantastic. I'll absolutely drop that in the show notes below. Um, and and I'm sure I want to invite you guys in the community as well in, in the audience here. If, if you um, have come across different, whether it's academic arguments, whether it's articles, whether it's videos, please don't hesitate to, to either send them my way or, or comment on the various streaming services and YouTube and whatever else, things that you found helpful. Please do do that. Um, and with all that said, Blaze, thank you a ton for carving out this time to, to chat with me on the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thanks for all the work that you're doing, not only in helping to develop um, stronger, better, more effective um, conversation skills for, for so many across Canada and around the world, but also um, for all the, the leadership that you're offering to CCBR and, and um, so many other pro-life groups um, that I won't even be able to name, even if we go for an extra period of time. Thanks a ton for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Kim. All right, folks, that's my conversation with Blaze Elaine. Um, I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I do. I know that he and I um, often um, dance a very um, intricate and complicated dance. I hope that that episode made sense to many of you. Um, if it didn't, again, I hope that summary towards the end um, helps bring a lot of things together. Again, we're going to be starting with common ground, as we so often do in our roadmap. Uh, meet with them where they're at, understanding and empathizing with the hardship, not only for the child, but also for the parents diving into an analogy um, that demonstrates would we be willing to kill a born child who is diagnosed with um, an illness, a disability, something that may be incurable, may be terminal, uh, terminal uh, may be very excruci excruciatingly painful. If we're not going to do it for a born child, why a preborn child? Repeating it back to them if they are willing to um, kill a born child as well as a preborn child, and then testing the limit where does this go for them and seeking to understand, trying to find why it is that they hold this worldview, what um, factors and experiences have contributed towards it, and then building towards a different perspective that allows us to inspire them towards doing something which may very well be far more challenging, far more difficult, and yet the only appropriate solution being that which does not directly and intentionally kill an innocent preborn child. So I hope that makes a ton of sense. I alluded to it a few times through the episode. We are going to be doing a giveaway. We have three signed copies by Blaze Lane himself of his book, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. And it's not entirely related to this podcast, but it, it is a very valuable read. Um, Blaze has made himself indispensable at the Physicians for Life Conference, often training um, up-and-coming doctors, nurses, and other medical pre um, professionals in um, how to talk about and how to navigate questions about assisted suicide and euthanasia. So we've got three... Um, three signed copies of that book. If you don't already have it, or if you just want a signed copy of it, um, please do sign up for our mailing list. Um, our mailing list, I'm going to send out the contest details in the next day or two, and you'll have one full week 
to submit your um, registration, I suppose, in this contest. You'll have one full week, and then at the end of the full week, all the people that entered into the draw, I'll draw three names at random and send them a sweet book. And so please do that. For those of you who may be new to the show, please do check out our other episodes. We try to cover a range of different topics that may come up in conversation. Some of them are more direct. Some of them are a little more indirect, I suppose, um, as they relate to politics and a few other things. Um, yeah, I hope that you've enjoyed the episode. All that to say, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day, however many hours are left in it. And I pray that may God bless you abundantly wherever you're at, how many ever hours are left in your day. 